0: Please turn to uh, Revelation chapter 13. Uh, again, if you're, if you're new to our Sunday school class, we're gonna jump right in. Uh, we've been going through the book of Revelation for about uh, three or four months right now. Uh, we have reached uh, the center of the book. And um, last week in Revelation 12, uh, the Apostle John had this vision that summarized all of human history. We learned about this big story in which every story fits under about how the church, that God's people ultimately, in the end, will have victory over all evil, and particularly victory over the evil one. Um, But we also learned last week that this great story is a great war. The story of the universe is not a romantic comedy, right? It's not The Office, okay? Actually, it's a lot more like a grisly World War II movie. War movies might be cool to watch, but if you ask a war veteran... War itself is often brutal and awful. And so this week uh, in chapter 13, we are going to see how the dragon, which is Revelation's way of talking about the evil one, the devil, okay, how he wages war against God and his people. If you've ever wondered what God was doing when he allowed the Nazis to take over Europe or allowed the Soviet Union for decades to murder and persecute Christians wondering why isis is allowed to exist in the world this passage is going to help you understand that uh, or more broadly if you struggle with the idea that a good and loving god might allow you to suffer um, that he might allow in fact governments to rise up that would cause you to suffer this passage is going to help you understand that so let's see how evil tries to make war on god and his people and what god calls his people to do in response Uh, real quickly we're actually going to start in uh, chapter 12 verse 17 because we'll notice there uh, how these passages are so connected Uh, the dragon stands by the sea in chapter 12 verse 17 and then in chapter 13 verse 1 this beast rises out of the sea. Uh, just real quickly, before we jump in, I'm going to explain this as we, uh, when, we, when we go through, but these two beasts, all right, it's not like Godzilla's coming at the end of the world, okay? These, these beasts represent people. We'll see that very clearly as we open the passage up, but when you read a beast uh, here in uh, Revelation 13, these are people. They are end times people who rise up, all right? I'll, uh, I'll hopefully be able to convince you of that when we dive in. So Revelation 12, Uh, verse 17 all the way to the end of uh, chapter 13 then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horn and, and blasphemous names on its heads and the beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation and language and All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven (laughs) to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work, In the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. Six, six. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, we just admit <laughs> our uh, dependence upon you and reliance uh, just to understand the scriptures. Uh, thank you for this passage. Uh, as difficult as it might be to read or to think about, uh, we just pray you would come. Help us see your sovereignty and glory and goodness, even in the midst of great evil. Uh, we pray you would do that, that you'd encourage us, enable us to endure and to have faith. As we hear your hear your voice this morning, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So history and literature. <laughs> Movies and our imaginations are full of this basic plot line. Evil almost wins. Uh, The basic plot line of every superhero movie there ever was, evil almost wins. In fact, uh, if you watch the most recent Avengers movie, Infinity War, the reason you hated it or that the ending blew your mind is that it basically left off with the bad guy winning. Of course, we're all waiting for the sequel where we realize he just almost won. What's the basic plot line of maybe the two most well-known fantasy works in our day, Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings? The plot line is the Dark Lords almost win. In fact, uh, they come so close to winning, uh, I'll just spoil it here, okay? Uh, Voldemort kills Harry Potter and Middle-earth is only saved because a crazy little monster bites off Frodo's finger. It's literally saved by the skin of his finger. Evil comes so close to winning. What do we see happen over and over again in history? Evil almost wins. The Nazis almost conquered the world. Did you guys know that with more time, they probably would have developed atomic weapons? Can you imagine what would have happened if in 1944, the Nazis had dropped nuclear bombs on London and DC? They might have won. They really almost did. And at the time that John uh, wrote this vision, so again, uh, if you haven't been here in class, uh, Revelation is a letter written to suffering and struggling churches in the Roman Empire, right? In this first and second century uh, of Christianity where these churches are under great persecution and pressure from their culture to renounce Christ. And uh, John writes them this letter. Again, it's a letter um, with all these visions in it in order to encourage them to persevere. But uh, this, uh, these people who would read this letter, they were living uh, in a culture where it looked very much like evil was winning. Uh, they had no cultural power. Uh, their culture either ignored or persecuted them. The emperor, all right, let me just give you a couple rundowns of Roman emperors, okay? Nero, uh, he enjoyed killing Christians as a hobby. He thought, he thought it was kind of fun. He was a little deranged and crazy. The emperor Domitian, uh, a couple of guys after Nero, he demanded that his subjects worship him as a god. And so uh, John has written us this vision of these two beasts not to scare us into praying we will die before all this happens, okay, uh, but to help us understand uh, the world in which we live and where it is ultimately heading and all of that might mean for the ways in which evil almost wins in our lives. So we're going to see three key truths, all right, about how the dragon almost wins. And I decided to go against kind of the normal way I teach normally I teach verse by verse. I think it's a little easier in a passage like this to t- just take out three big principles here, and if you guys have any questions about specific verses, we'll have a little Q&A time at the end, all right? So three key truths about the dragon's war on the saints. First, Thing we have to camp on and think about is the fact that the dragon does almost win. In fact, by all appearances in this last age of human history, the dragon will win. It will look very much like he's won. Look at verses uh, verse three, the end of verse three, beginning of verse uh, four. We see that the whole earth marvels as they follow the beast and they worship, the dragon, the devil, for he has given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it, again, we'll see in a second, this beast is an evil world ruler, we'll see that very clearly in a moment, but uh, at the outset, just notice, (laughs) Revelation 13 tells us one day, all right, the entire world will worship the evil one, the dragon, all right, you're going to go to a baseball game, And instead of playing the national anthem, people will be swearing their allegiance to the evil one and singing songs in his name. That is how close he comes to winning. Verses 7 to 8, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. He is given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. Christians finally lose the culture wars. There are no more churches unless they are ones who worship the evil one. Verse 13, the dragon's second servant, the second beast, again, we'll see his identity in a moment, okay? He performs great signs. He makes fire come down from heaven. It appears like he has supernatural powers. It looks a lot like God's power. Uh, Verses 16 to 17 say that the dragon servants have such control over the earth that they can make people who don't align themselves with them unable to buy or sell. If they don't kill you, they'll just make you starve. Okay, so notice here this passage tells us, I think, in the clearest terms possible, that in the last stage of human history, things are not going to look pretty. History is not making progress towards this idyllic age where finally technology solved our problems and people get along, okay? That's a, that's a lie our culture tells us. America's made some progress, right? There's some, there's some good things that have happened in our history, right? but here is where history is heading and to this day. And again, um, we are supposed to look around at our world, at what is going on in our culture, what happens in our lives, the things we see on our news feeds, right? And we're supposed to say, Revelation 13 helps me understand those things. Um, If we could translate maybe the message of this passage into modern terms, it might be something a little scary that you may not want to hear, and that is this. The United States of America ultimately is not your friend. She, no matter how she might seem now, I'm just going to use the feminine there, okay? All right. Eventually, all right, she becomes Rome. She becomes Babylon. She becomes this kingdom. Or maybe she's conquered by this kingdom. We're not sure. Right? You might think uh, there's no way this can happen. all right? Uh, and I think, I think we can say this. it's not a matter of where we've been. It's a matter of where we're going. It's a matter of trajectory, where the world's headed. Okay? Um, it's happened a 100 times in history. If you read it, though, great nations go sour very quickly. Let me give you a silly example. Let me lighten it up a little bit, okay? Uh, One of the best all-time Christmas movies in history is Elf, okay? I love the movie Elf. I watch it every Christmas, okay? And Buddy the Elf, uh, he's a human being, so he's not really a good toy maker. In fact, he uh, gets reprimanded for only making 80 Etch-a-Sketches in one day, okay? Uh, Anyway, so he gets relegated, all right, to being the toy tester. And there's this scene where you feel so bad for him where he's sitting there with a little jack in the box he's going dun 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 dun, dun, dun. you know he's like oh it's not going to happen god it pops out you know and it's hilarious i just could watch it over and over again okay <laughs> uh, but let me uh, let me just give an example of how this might work okay uh, as we live in america right now and we enjoy this god given freedom and we enjoy our free speech and we enjoy the unbelievable prosperity our nation has made possible for us and the unbelievable freedom it's made possible for us. What we are doing, all right, what's really going on is we're turning the crank and we're hearing the music, all right? One day, we don't know when, one day the jack comes out of the box. One day the true nature of cultures and nations and uh, technologies reveal themselves. And this is one of the main reasons the Bible again and again warns us not to love the world. Um, If you are more of a patriot than you are a Christian, one day you will belong to the beast. If your values and desires and the things you long for and want are more shaped by our nation's values than by values derived from a relationship with Jesus, you will one day belong to the beast. If you really just want a house and a picket fence, spouse and and two-and-a-half kids, if that's the chief desire ruling you, all right, eventually you will belong to this kingdom we see in Revelation 13. And I think secondly, all right, it's going to get better here. Just kidding, okay. Uh, Revelation 13 helps us see that all of our lives, every single person here, eventually, is heading to a time of suffering and death. Now, it might be uh, in the kingdom of Revelation 13, but it might be in a hospital bed when you're 85 at the end of your life, right? Uh, one of my heroes, Richard Baxter, said that Christianity is a religion for the poor, dying sinner. That it's, it's a religion uh, designed for someone whose hope for this life and whose, whose, whose expectations for what this life will be like have essentially died. And uh, I'm not saying we don't enjoy life. I'm not saying we don't participate in our government. I'm not saying we don't uh, thank God for the blessings that we receive. <laughs> but I am saying that we approach this American life, right? We approach our walks with Jesus uh, here in this American culture with this mindset that this is not where I'm going to find life. This is not my home. Right? I do not ultimately belong here. And one day, world history will reveal that. Christianity is a religion focused primarily on the next life. We should live like peoples whose hope is in the next life. So there's the news nobody wants to hear. Here's the reason people don't teach on Revelation. Here's the reason most people read it once and say, I'm done with that, okay? Because it reveals fairly clearly that evil almost wins. That he comes so close that he conquers the whole world and kills and imprisons most Christians. All right, next we will see how evil almost wins. He wins through conquest and deceit. Uh, Notice the dragon almost wins by raising up an evil world ruler who will conquer the world. Look at verse 1. We'll explain this beast figure. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns, 7 heads, 10 diadems on its horns, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth you might be thinking this beast is kind of like Godzilla, okay? Um, But in Daniel 7, uh, John is alluding directly to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, God gives Daniel a vision of the future. And guess what this future looks like? Four great beasts. The first is like a lion, right here. The second is like a bear, right here. The third is like a leopard. And the fourth is this horrifying Hulk-like monster. And in Daniel 7, 17, God interprets the vision for Daniel, and he says this, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Daniel asks God more questions about this fourth horrible beast, and God explains to him that there's going to be this particular ruler who rises and who speaks great things or arrogant things and who makes war on the saints and conquers them. And just notice... All of that is right here in Revelation 13. And if all that Bible cross-referencing confused you, all right, here's the point. John is quoting Daniel to help us see that this beast is an evil world ruler who rises at the end of time and who basically conquers the world. He's an empire builder. Why is he called a beast? Because his kingdom will be beastly. It will be inhumane, horrible, cruel, powerful. So that's the first thing the dragon does he raises up an evil world conqueror. But that's not maybe the primary way the dragon makes war. We see, secondly, that the dragon deceives, that uh, he loves to deceive. He doesn't just want to rule the world. He wants the world to worship him. And so he tricks the world into worshiping him. So uh, the commentary I read said that many scholars speculate. Maybe you've a uh, had this question or had someone ask you, why did Satan fall? I remember my first time, I was a middle school pastor, we had a question and answer night, and like the third question, some kid comes out of the gate, like, why did Satan fall? And I'm like, I don't know, you know? <laughs> uh, and there's, there's, not, there's not a biblical answer for that question. There's no Bible verse that tells us. Uh, but some scholars speculate the reason he fell was because he wanted the worship and glory that only God deserves. And we see here that, in fact, his end game is to have the worship and glory. And glory of the entire world. And he gets that through deceit. Um, The most astounding thing about this passage is that in everything the devil does, he is imitating God. He's a propaganda master. Just notice this a little bit, okay? Verse verse 2b, he gives his authority to the beast, just like the Father gives all of his authority to the Son. Verse 3. One of the beast's heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Its mortal wound was healed. Notice verse 14 we see again at the very end the image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. We have someone dying here and coming back to life. That looks a lot like Christ. In the beast, one of the main things the beast does in this passage is he blasphemes. And blasphemy is basically reviling God. What's the best way to revile God? It's to claim that you are God. And the second beast we see in verses 11 to uh, 18 is particularly devoted to deceit. The first beast deceives in his appearance, but the second beast uh, deceives in everything he does. We'll see in Revelation 19:20 20, the second beast is identified as a false prophet. Someone who sp- claims to speak for God, but does not. Notice in verse 11, he has two horns like a lamb. Like the Lamb of God from Revelation 5, he looks like Christ, but he speaks like a dragon. He speaks like the evil one. He's the anti-Holy Spirit. Notice what he does. The Holy Spirit works miracles and power among God's people. Verse 13, the second beast works miracles to deceive the nation. Uh, What does the Holy Spirit do? He glorifies Christ. He helps us experience the love of the Father. What does the second beast do? He tries to glorify the Antichrist and the devil. If you remember Revelation 7, uh, way back in memory banks, you might remember that God sealed his servants, that he put the mark of his kingship and authority over his people. He kept them safe. Notice that in his desire to imitate God, in Revelation 13, 16 through 17, the second beast marks all of the people of the world with this mark of the beast. Now, this is something that most of you guys, if you were raised Christian, had maybe heard about and you were scared that if I stay too long on page 666, then I'm taking the mark of the beast. Uh, let's look at this for a second. This is the, maybe the hardest verse in the whole book of Revelation. So this is a very difficult question. I'm going to take a brief sidebar and then go back to the main point just because I know that you are curious, all right? The mark of the beast in verse 18, all right? Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Revelation 18 specifically tells us that the mark of the beast is the number of a person's name. We're going to go back to a cultural thing in the first century. This sounds kind of weird. I'm going to try to explain it. Back in the day, uh, Hebrew authors uh, and Hebrew scholars made a lot Of value in people's names. In fact, there was this really weird thing they used to do, where they would assign numerical values to letters of the alphabet. I told you this is hard and weird, okay? They would assign numerical values to letters of the alphabet. It's kind of like a secret agent code, right? A is one, you know. B is two. C is three. That's that's what they did, and they would find great significance in people's names. And so I think, and scholars think, what's going on here is this number six 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 represents. Uh, the number, literally, like with numerical values assigned to each letter, of a person. Interestingly enough, uh, the Hebrew word for Nero Caesar, who was probably the emperor at this time, uh, his value comes to 666. That's a good suggestion that most scholars think. Uh, But uh, I think regardless, all right, whatever it means, I'm not sure what it means. Uh, Whatever it means, Uh, this mark of the beast, all right, to take the mark of the beast, all right, you are publicly and I think irrevocably declaring your allegiance to this evil world ruler. You are renouncing Christ publicly as your Lord. Let me me give an example of of what what it might have looked like in history to take the mark of the beast, all right. If you would like uh, to not be murdered and killed, and you live in 1940s Germany, you must join the Nazi Party and swear your ultimate allegiance to Adolf Hitler. That would be an example of taking the mark of the beast. Uh, maybe, or in first century Rome, uh, you must you offer a religious sacrifice, which is idolatry and blasphemy, right, to the Roman emperor, so that you can continue to have a job. So the whole point of that, all right? We don't know exa- exactly what the mark of the beast is, but I know that it will be a huge thing. It's if you get $6.60 back at Starbucks, all right, that's not the mark of the beast, okay? You shouldn't even worry about that, okay? It can't happen when you spend a little too much time on page 666 in that novel you're reading, all right? Don't, don't, don't get weirded out by this. It's symbolic, all right? The idea, though, is that in this future kingdom, people are going to be so deceived by the second beast that they are going to declare the ultimate allegiance of their life in an irrevocable spiritual way to this evil kingdom. So... That's a sidebar. hope that maybe helped you to not be worried about getting your change this week. Um, All that being said, though, we're back to the main point. The evil one will throw most of his resources in this end times period, and I think for every year until this time comes, into deceiving people. Uh, He will deceive and force the nations to worship him. And the way he does this is he gives people something that looks a lot like Jesus but it's not he gives people a fake gospel and a fake Christ so we can talk about what it might look like to be faithful if we were conquered by this evil kingdom or if the house of representatives next week passed a bill I guess whenever our government starts up again okay that uh, would limit the free speech of Christians or persecute them we could talk about that we'll talk about that in a little bit right? But I want to focus an application just on deceit, on this uh, not being deceived. No one here can control the rise and fall of empires, right? Uh, but we can control whether or not we're deceived. Um, let me just explain. Uh, we are not living in Revelation 13. I don't think so. Uh, but there's a lot of people in here who are wrestling against a false gospel or a false Christ. Let me, let me just explain this. Uh, there's a false gospel that says that me and Jesus worked together for me to be saved. Right. I might uh, I might come to Christ at some point in my little childhood. But the reason God loves me is that right now I'm reading my Bible. I'm involved and I'm doing well. And when I do badly. Right. My guilt overwhelms me. I'm no longer loved by God. I better I better get back to a good place before I can come to the Lord. Right. Some of you guys live there. And what that is. Right. That is the evil one deceiving you. All right. The gospel tells you man, that when you believe in Jesus, if you've rested your life on Christ, you are 100% perfect and righteous in the sight of God. Nothing can change that if you're resting on Jesus. The devil's tricky, though. He also loves to deceive people through a fake gospel of, of God loving me so much that I can do whatever I want whenever I please. He's tricky. On one side of the fence, you fall into legalism. On the other, you say, Jesus died for me, so it does not matter how I live. Doesn't matter if I pursue him. Doesn't matter if I really, if I, if I give my life to Jesus. That is a false gospel. The real gospel is that the same grace that calls you to God and saves you and makes you right with God, it also fundamentally changes you. The grace that saves you draws you to obedience to Christ. Maybe the evil one is deceiving you with a false Christ this morning. Maybe you are looking to a person or the potential of the next step in your career to satisfy you. Maybe you're, you're setting your hopes on what might happen or what is happening in your life right now. Maybe you're setting your hopes upon the next spiritual experience you might have. You're not resting on Christ. So consider, you're not living here. I hope we don't live here anytime soon. But we're all wrestling against false gospels and false Christ, Consider what you're wrestling with. So as scary as this might seem, I think we see pretty clearly in Revelation 13 that evil really will almost win. The world's going to feel it. These last days, as Jesus said in Matthew, uh, will be so bad that if God did not cut them short, nobody would be saved. And we've seen the dragon will almost win through conquest and deceit. I have saved the best for last. Now we're going to be encouraged, I think. Uh, The actual main point of this passage I have not discussed yet, Um, and that is that the dragon almost wins only because God allows him to almost win. That, in fact, everything happening in this passage is utterly 100% under the control of God. Uh, The first thing we see is that all of the events here are explicitly prophesied and predicted by God. Why, one of the reasons why John references Daniel 7 here in describing this evil world ruler is because Daniel was written hundreds of years before Jesus came and thousands of years we now see before this kingdom comes. In other words, God, before, before any of this even comes to pass, he's predicted this would happen. He's spoken about it. And things that God knows in the future, he's in control of. The second thing, this entire passage... Makes it sound a lot like God is allowing this to happen. Notice how many times it is given or it was allowed is said. Notice verse 5. The beast was given a mouth uttering blasphemous words. He was allowed to have them. Uh, In the end of verse 5, he's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Verse 7, he is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Verse 15, all right, the second beast is allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. One of the uh, commentators I'm reading as I read the Revelation uh, says that it might be best to translate this as God gave throughout the whole passage. Imagine how differently that sounds. God gave the beast a mouth to utter blasphemous, blasphemous things. God gave it to the beast to conquer the saints. God gave it to the second beast to do all this crazy stuff. Finally, we see in verse 8, Notice the people who were deceived. It's everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So John's saying, hey, guys, the people who are going to be deceived, right? The only people who are going to be deceived are people who God has not known from eternity past who were his. God has a book, right? It was a book written before the world was created, and in that book, are all of the people that he would call to himself and save and deliver from their sins through Jesus? He has known it from before creation. And he is sovereign, therefore, over all. His people are preserved. So the idea is very clear in this passage. The only reason that, it's a, that it gets this bad, that life becomes like this, is because God allows it. And we might ask, the passage doesn't answer this question, but we might ask why God might do this. I think there are a few reasons. I think first God's goodness and kindness and love is highlighted by this wickedness. Uh, Ephesians 1 says that God's purpose for his people is that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. That God's purpose for your life in eternity is that forever you will be marveling at the grace and love and power of Jesus. And in some ways the darkness of this passage highlights the light. I think another thing, uh, maybe you struggled with this. How is, it, how is it just and good for God to um, judge unbelievers at the end of time? You've probably heard that objection a lot in, uh, in American, like can, God be, can a loving and good God send people to hell? Well, what if the people he's sending are worshiping the devil and murdering Christians? It's not, it, most, people, most people don't have a problem with Adolf Hitler going to hell, right? They don't. Here's the thing. When governmental and cultural situations allow, the whole world becomes Adolf Hitler, right? The people in this passage are worshiping the evil one, right? They're participating in the murder and destruction of Christians, So this passage, I think this passage allows us to see that God's judgment at the end of time is just. It's a rescue. It's good. I think finally, um, maybe another reason I'd suggest is that how good and wonderful and beautiful Jesus is. It is seen and experienced most powerfully in the midst of suffering and death. A guy who's sitting on his couch Feet up, watching Netflix, getting everything he wants. Life is good. Who loves Jesus? I think that's okay, right? Might have a season when that life's like that. They might genuinely treasure Jesus, but their lives don't have any power. Nobody's coming up to them, like First Peter says, and asking, what is the reason for the hope you have, right? And, and when loving Jesus costs you your life, he is seen as treasurable and valuable was a pastor uh, imprisoned in the beast-like Soviet Union uh, I think in the 70s or 80s he was uh, typically on a day a normal day beaten and tortured there's this one story about him where he was preaching to his fellow uh, prisoners the guards got mad drug him outside beat him they brought him back in and he just picks up where he left off can you imagine that was Sunday school <laughs> someone takes me outside beats me I come back in here I'm like alright guys <laughs> verse 11 you know <laughs> powerful guy but here's here's what he said the Jesus we knew so much about in our Bibles and preached about and talked about, he became real to us in prison. When my Bible was taken away, when my health was taken away, when my freedom to minister was taken away, then Jesus became real to me. And I don't think he's saying I wasn't a believer first. I think he's saying that in the midst of suffering and death, I experienced tangibly the presence of Jesus It was overwhelming. It was that joy unspeakable and full of glory we hear about in the scriptures that the apostles had in their sufferings. And so God is able, in a time like this, to pour out blessing, spiritual blessing on his people. He's done it before. Why God does this uh, is not answered in this passage. And in fact, the main application point of this passage is not to look for answers. It is to endure and have faith. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 10. I think I would just, if there's one verse from this passage to leave you with uh, for the day, that's the end of verse 13. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. The main thing John wants for us as we read this passage, as we hear about these days that are coming, he wants us to see that what God calls us to, whether we're living here or we're living in 21st century America, and the relative peace and prosperity is endurance and faith. Endurance is simply perseverance through pain and struggle. Uh, I ran a half marathon about a month ago. Uh, my foot is still injured. So welcome to almost being 30, right? But, uh, but the race was interesting. I, I, I felt like I trained pretty well. I prepared. And so um, the first eight miles, I felt like I was crushing it. Felt great. Like, I'm going to kill this. I don't even feel bad, right? Miles 9 and 10, I was like, OK okay, I'm feeling it. And then miles 11, 12, and 13 were pure pain. Uh, I was dying. I'm not going to make it. Why did I sign up for this? Please return Lord Jesus now. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and yet, uh, there were people around me who were running. One of my buddies called up with me. And so I, I finished about as strong as I started through the pain. And, uh, The Bible, when it talks about perseverance, it gives us this image of a race, right? We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. They've run before us. That life is meant to feel, in some senses, like miles 11, 12, and 13. Endurance through pain. And even if you do not live in this kingdom of Revelation 13, God is calling you to endurance in the various pains and sufferings of your life. Sometimes you will not have the answers. Sometimes you won't understand why things have gone the way they've gone, but God is calling you to endure, but not just to endure. Endurance can be this white-knuckled, I hate this, but I'm going to do it anyways. He also calls us to faith, the endurance and the faith of the saints. Faith in the Bible is not just intellectual assent. It's not just, I believe that Jesus was a person who existed, right? Faith is reliance and resting and trusting a person, right? Faith in Jesus Faith in the gospel is resting your entire life and the weight of your soul upon the person of Christ. Faith living in difficulty is trusting that even when you cannot see the hand of God working, when when you cannot understand why He would allow this, you rest upon the fact that He's good. One of my favorite uh, Baptist preachers, and we can just close here, all right, with Charles Spurgeon, he said this God is too good to be unkind. And too wise to be mistaken, so when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Even when you feel like evil is winning in your life, when you can't see God's hand, trust his heart. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, I just thank you that even in a passage as difficult and um, and sometimes as depressing as this, that there are clear marks the fact that you rule and you reign and you are working good for your people. I pray as we face uh, difficulties this week that are very small in comparison to Revelation 13, that we'd have uh, the same endurance and the same faith and that we would look to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.